Hello everyone. The following is a bonus episode featured on Sleep and Relax ASMR and Friends originally. The reason why I am featuring it on the regular podcast is because I had a few listeners request this type of episode a couple weeks back. And, uh, well, I don't want you to miss this episode if you were one of the few that requested something like this. Um, Now, for those of you unfamiliar, Sleep and Relax ASMR and Friends is a second podcast I started. It's going to feature bonus episodes from Sleep and Relax ASMR, and it will feature content from other independent, uh, very talented ASMR content creators. So, didn't want you to miss this particular episode, since I did get a few requests, Um, but if you're looking for more content and, well, different ASMR, make sure to check out Sleep and Relax ASMR and Friends. You'll find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Podcasts. You'll find it basically everywhere you'll find Sleep and Relax ASMR. So, either way, enjoy this bonus episode, and thanks for listening. episode I'm whispering the Wikipedia page for the Parliament of 1327. This is a series we call ASM Articles. Basically, we pick a person, place, event, whatever it may be, and we learn about it After you learn something useful, maybe, probably not, then you fall asleep or relax. It's whatever you need it to do for you. So, with that in mind, let's get on with the Parliament of 1327. which sat at the Palace of Westminster between January 7th and March 9th, 1327, was instrumental in the transfer of the English crown from King Edward II to his son, Edward III, previously Earl of Chester. Edward II had become increasingly unpopular with the English nobility, predominantly because of the excessive influence of unpopular court favorites. Patronage he devoted to them and his perceived ill treatment of the nobility. By 1325, even his wife Isabella despised him. Toward the end of the year, she took their son, the Earl of Chester, to France, where she joined and probably entered into a relationship with a powerful and wealthy nobleman, Roger Mortimer, whom her husband had exiled. The following year, they invaded England to depose Edward II. Almost immediately, the king's resistance was beset by betrayal, and he eventually abandoned London and fled west, probably to raise an army in Wales or Ireland. He was soon captured and imprisoned. Isabella and Mortimer summoned a parliament to confer legitimate 
Westminster on the 7th of January, but little could be done in the absence of the king. <clears throat> the 14-year-old Earl of Chester was proclaimed keeper of the realm, but not yet king, and as a parliamentary deputation was sent to Edward II asking him to allow himself to be brought to Parliament, he refused and the Parliament
had the rebels get into the court of Aegon's backing, Hainut's backing. In return, Isabella agreed that the prince would marry the count's daughter, Philippa of Hainut. This was a further insult to the English king who had intended to use his eldest son's marriage as a bargaining tool against France, probably intending a marriage alliance with Spain. Invasion of England From February 1326, it was clear in England that Isabella and Mortimer intended to invade. Despite false alarms, large ships, as a defensive measure, were forbidden from leaving English ports, and some were pressed into royal service. King Edward declared war on France in July. Isabella and Mortimer invaded England in September, landing in Suffolk on the 24th. The commander of the royal fleet assisted the rebels the first of many betrayals Edward II suffered. Isabella and Mortimer soon found they had significant support among the English political class. They were quickly joined by Thomas, Earl of Norfolk, the king's brother, accompanied by Henry, Earl of Leicester, of Leicester brother of the executed Earl of Lancaster, and soon afterwards arrived the Archbishop of Canterbury and Bishops of Hereford and Lincoln. Support for the king had dissolved, and accompanied by Dispenser, he deserted London and traveled west. Edward's fight to the west precipitated his downfall. Historian Michael Prestwich describes the king's support as collapsing like a building hit by an earthquake. Edward's rule was already weak, and even before the invasion, along with preparation, there had been panic. Now there was simply panic. Rod notes how, given that Mortimer and his adherents were already condemned traitors, and that any engagement with the invading force was to be treated as an act of open rebellion, it is all the more striking how many great men were prepared to enter upon such a high-risk venture at such an early stage in its persecution. In this respect, at least the presence of the heir to the throne in the Queen's entourage may have proved decisive. attempt to raise an army in South Wales was to no avail, and he and Spencer were captured on November 16, 1326, near Lanstrasant. This, along with the unexpected swiftness with which his entire regime had collapsed, forced Isabella and Mortimer to wield, to wield, yeah, to wield executive power. Not weird, wield <laughs> executive power until they made arrangements for the successor to the throne was incarcerated by the Earl of Leicester, while those suspected of being dispenser spies or supporters of the king, particularly in London, which was aggressively loyal to the queen, were murdered by mobs. Isabella spent the last months of 1326 in the West Country, and while in Bristol witnessed the hanging of dispenser's father, the Earl of Winchester on October 27th. Dispenser himself was captured in Hereford and executed there within the month. In Bristol, Isabella, Mortimer, and the accompanying lords discussed strategy. Not yet possessing the Great Seal, on October 26th they proclaimed Edward 
descent of the whole community of the Zed Kingdom present there. Isabella, Mortimer, and the Lords arrived in London on January 4th, 1327. In response to the previous year's spate of murders, Londoners had been forbidden to bear arms, and two days later, all citizens had sworn an oath to keep the peace. Parliament met on January 7th to consider the state of the realm. Now the king was incarcerated. It had originally been summoned by Isabella and the prince in the name of the king on October 28th, the previous year. Parliament had been intended to assemble on December 14th, 1326, but on December 3rd, still in the name of the king, further writs were issued deferring the sitting until early next year. This, it was implied, was due to the king of this parliament would have to be held before the Queen and Prince Edward. The history of Parliament Trust has described this legality of the writs as being highly questionable, and C.T. Wood called the sitting a show of pseudo-parliamentary regularity, stage managed by Mortimer and Thomas Lord Wake. For Isabella,
authorities were uncertain as to the legality of Isabel's parliament. Edward II was still king, although in official documents this was only with alongside his most beloved consort, Isabella, Queen of England, and his firstborn son, Keeper of the Kingdom, in what Bill Bradford called as a nominal presidency. King Edward was said to be abroad when in reality he was imprisoned in Kenilworth Castle. It was maintained that he desired a colloquium and a tractatum conference and consultation. Sorry, I keep clicking here accidentally. Sorry if you can hear that. A conference and consultation with his lords upon various affairs touching himself and the estate of the kingdom. Hence the holding of parliament. Supposedly it was Edward II himself who postponed the first sitting until January for certain necessary causes and utilities, presumably at the behest of the Queen and Mortimer. A priority for the new regime was deciding what to do with Edward II. Mortimer considered holding a state trial for treason and the expectation of a guilty verdict and a death sentence. He and other lords discussed the matter at Isabella's Wallingford, Wallingford Castle just after Christmas, but with no agreement. The Lord's Temporal affirmed that Edward had failed his country so gravely that only his death could heal it. The attending bishops, on the other hand, held that whatever his faults, he had been anointed king by God. This presented Isabella and Mortimer with two problems. First, the bishops' arguments would be popularly understood as risking the wrath of God. Second, public trials always bring the danger of an unintended verdict, particularly as it seems like a broad body of public opinion doubted whether an anointed king could even commit treason. <coughs> Such a result would mean not only Edward's release, but his restoration to the throne. Mortimer and Isabella sought to avoid a trial and yet keep Edward II imprisoned for life. The king's imprisonment officially by his son had been had become public knowledge, and Isabella and Mortimer's hand was forced as the arguments for Prince Edward being named Keeper of the Kingdom were now groundless, as the king had clearly returned to his realm one way or another. Attendance No parliament had sat since November 1325th. Only 26 of the 46 parents who had been summoned on it in October 1326 for the December Parliament were then also summoned to that of January 1327, and six of those had never received summons under Edward II at all. Officially, the investigators, the instigators of the Parliament, were the bishops of Hereford and Winchester, Roger Mortimer and Thomas Wake. Isabella almost certainly played a background role. They summoned as Lord Spiritual as Lord's Spiritual the Archbishop of Canterbury and fifteen English and four Welsh bishops, as well as nineteen abbots. <coughs> the Lord's Temporal were represented by the Earls of Norfolk, Kent, Lancaster, Surrey, Oxford, Athol, and Hereford. Forty seven parents, twenty three royal justices, and several knights and burgesses. Burgesses were 
or summon from the Shires. They may well have been encouraged, suggests Medicott, by the wages to be paid to those attending. The handsome sum of four shillings a day for a night and two for a purchase. Isabella's fear of the king asked. 
as the assembled lords whom they would prefer to rule, Edward or his son. The response was sluggish, with no rush to either depose or acclaim. Deposition had been raised too suddenly for many members to stomach. The king was still not entirely friendless, and indeed had been described by Paul Dryburn as casting an ominous shadow over the proceedings. Proceedings on January 13th, Tuesday. Whether Edward II resigned his throne or was forced from it, under pressure, the crown legally changed hands on January 13th with the support, it was recorded, of all the baronage of the land. Parliament met in the morning and then suspended itself. A large group of the Lords Temporal and Spiritual made their way to the city of London to Guildhall, where they swore in an oath to uphold all that had been ordained or shall be ordained to the, for the common profit. The group then returned to Westminster in the afternoon, and the Lords formally acknowledged that Edward II was no longer to be king. Several orations were made. Mortimer, speaking on behalf of the Lords, announced their decision. Edward II, he proclaimed, would abdicate, and Sir Edward should have the government of the realm and be crowned king. Articles of Accusation During the sermons, the articles of deposition were officially presented to the assembly, in contrast to the elaborate and floridly hyperbolic accusations previously launched at the dispensers. This was a relatively simple document. The king was accused of being incapable of fair rule, of indulging false counselors, preferring his own amendments to good government, neglecting England and losing Scotland, dilapidating the church and imprisoning the clergy, and all in all being a fundamental breach of the coronation oath he had made to his subjects, all of which the rebels claimed was so well known as to be undeniable. The articles accuse Edward's favorites of tyranny, although now the king himself, whom they describe as incorrigible, without hope of reform. January 13th reiterated the articles of accusation and all concluded by offering Prince Edward as king if the people approved him. The crown outside, which included a large company of unruly Londoners, says Valente, had been whipped into such fervor by dramatic outcries at appropriate points in the orations from Thomas Wake, who repeatedly rose and demanded the assembly whether they agree with each speaker. Do you agree? Do the people of the country agree? Wake's exhortations, arms outstretched, as Presswich he cried, I see for myself that he shall reign no more, combined with the intimidating mob led to tumultuous responses of let it be done, let it be done. Edward III was proclaimed king. At the end of the day, said Valente, the electio of the magnates received the acclamatio of populi. The end. Proceedings drew to a close with a chorus of Gloria Laus et Honor and perhaps oaths of homage from the lords to the new king. The king's response. 
plus rates from confirmation of the acts against the Spencers and those in favor of Thomas of Lancaster to the reconfirmation of the Magna Carta. The Commons were too were concerned for the restoration of law and order, and one of their petitions called for the immediate appointment of wide-ranging keepers of the peace who could, who could personally put men on trial. Their request was agreed by the King's Council. The return to normal parliamentary business demonstrated it was hoped both the regime's legitimacy and its ability to repair the injustices of the previous reign. Most of the petitions were accepted, resulting in 17 statute, statute articles, which indicates how keen Isabella Mortimer were to placate the commons. When Parliament finally dissolved on March 9, 1327, it had been the second longest at 71 days of the century to date. Further notes Todd, because of this it was the only assembly in the late medieval period to outlive a king and see in his successor. Meanwhile Edward II was still imprisoned at Kenilworth and was intended to stay there forever. Attempts to free him led to a transfer to the more secure Berkeley Castle in early April 1327. Plotting continued, and he was frequently moved to other places. Eventually being returned to Berkeley for good, Edward died there on the night of, December, of September 21st. Mark Almond described this as suspiciously timely for Mortimer, as Edward's almost certain murder removed a rival and a target for restoration of her good. here, but it's mostly about uh, sort of scholars' take on on the events and all that. And this episode is running a little bit long, so I will end it there. I hope you enjoyed learning about the Parliament of 1327. I certainly did. Um, if you have any suggestions, questions, comments, you can always reach the show by emailing hello sleepandrelaxasmr.com You can always check out our website sleepandrelaxasmr.com Thanks as always for listening. 